It's wonderful to be with you this evening. Uh, my name is Craig. I'm uh, a minister in training here at the church. And let me especially welcome you if you are a visitor this evening. If you are uh, a note taker or come to spy later on, got a small handout at the back telling you where we're going this evening in the text. So feel free to grab one of those now uh, before we start the sermon. So this evening we carry on our series in Ephesians. Whenever uh, Andy Robertson or I are preaching, uh, we'll be looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And just as a reminder uh, of, of what's going on in Ephesus when Paul writes this letter, Ephesus was a trade hub in the Roman Empire. It was also the center of worship of Artemis. So what does that mean? It means that this small church, these once Artemis worshippers were in this big city overshadowed by the superpower of Rome. It means that this church would feel small, marginalized, and because of where they came from, they would be aware of the spiritual battle that they are in. So Paul, in his opening verses, in verses 1 to 14, we looked at last week, reminds these believers that they have every, every spiritual blessing in Christ. He tells them they've been adopted by God the Father, that they have been redeemed by Jesus the Son, and they have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And what Paul's, Paul says is true of these Christians in Ephesus is true for all Christians today. So let's carry on looking at this letter. Let me read for us verses 15 to 23. If you've got a church Bible, that's on page 1173. Let me read this for us and then let me pray. Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let me pray. Our Father, our desire this evening, as we look at your word, is what Paul prays for here, to know you better. As we look upon what Paul wrote what he prayed for for this church. May we also be a people who pray it for each other. May we leave here not knowing more about you, but leave here knowing you. We ask all these things for your glory, Lord Jesus, and for our joy in you. Amen. 
I don't know if you've noticed just now, but f- photography is one of the big in things just now. I had a friend who wanted to get into photography, and he bought one of those uh, big fancy DSLR cameras, one of the big digital ones. Um, but the problem was, he wasn't very good at taking photos. So, so what did he do? He then bought a better camera. He was a good friend of mine like me. He was all the gear, no idea sort of person. And did this new camera help him? Well, no, not really. See, what my friend needed wasn't a new camera. He had everything he needed in that camera to take beautiful pictures. Instead, what he needed was lessons to learn how to use what he already has. See, Paul in verses 1 to 14 tells the Ephesian Christians that they have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And in our passage, he prays that they may understand what they have in Christ. Have a look at verse 15, our opening verse, and notice what it is that drives Paul to pour out this prayer. Do you notice it's the Ephesians' faith in Jesus and love for his people. Paul is convinced that they are Christians. They've grasped that being in Christ changes their, relation, their relationship with God, the vertical relationship, and their relationship with other people horizontally. See, growth and understanding the gospel is seen in both of these areas or not at all. And Paul is sure of what he said in verses 1 to 14 is true of them. He is confident they are in Christ. He gives thanks to God for them, so he prays for them to know God. Look at verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That raises the question, doesn't it? I thought the Ephesians knew God. Didn't Paul mention that in verses 1 to 14? But yes, they do know God. Do we know God? Yes, we do know God. So why is Paul writing this? Paul is saying there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Think of it like this. When I was a student at university, I'd heard of this whiskey. This whiskey was smooth, and yet somehow had a slight smoky taste to it. It was a whiskey you could hold up in a glass, and you could look at its golden hue. You could see how beautiful it was when the light hit it. I'd heard about these things. I knew about them. Then one summer, me and my friends took a trip to Orkney. We went to the Highland Park Distillery, And then when that whiskey touched our tongues, we knew the things we believed were true. See, Paul's desire in his prayer is not that they may know about God better, but they may know God better. You may be able to write the most wonderfully crafted theological essays. You may be able to recite all sorts of confessions and yet not truly know God and only know about him. The wonderful thing about knowing God is we'll never reach the depths of how wonderful he is. I I love box sets on TV. And one of the sad things with box sets is you love them and it comes to the end and you're a little bit sad. Not so with God. He is infinite in all that he is. He is eternal in all that he is. That means as we grow in knowing God, there's always, always more we can learn about him. Always more we can enjoy about him. 
I was reminded of a quote from uh, the book Prince Caspian, where Lucy uh, meets Aslan for the first time. And she says, you're bigger. And Aslan says, I'm not. But every year, every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And that's what's like as we grow in knowing God. He doesn't change. He doesn't get bigger. But as you grow in knowing God, we see him as bigger. Have a look at verse 17. If you want to know how big God is, this verse is packed full of stuff. Do you notice the Trinity going on here in this verse? God, I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you spirit. You've got the whole Trinity working here in this verse. But let's just look at the end of this verse, the tricky bit. Does this verse mean that the Holy Spirit can leave a Christian and that we need to be refilled by the Holy Spirit? We need to be topped up by him? Well, no, I don't think that's true. What Paul is praying for here is that the Holy Spirit's work in the believer may be one that opens the eyes of, of the believer to greater knowledge of Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation. This idea of, of, of revelation and mystery is something we'll We'll see, keep popping up in the letter of Ephesians. Have a look uh, at verse 9 of chapter 1. We see it for the first time there. He made known to us the mystery of his will. And then in a few sessions time in chapter 3, it was full of this mystery thing going on in the letter. See, the revelation that the Spirit will bring is not a revelation of something outside Scripture, not something against Scripture. He'll never do that. But instead here, he is revealing something that was a mystery that was once hidden. We'll go and see in more detail that this mystery is that anyone from any background could be reconciled to God through the cross. Let's pause here and remember this is a prayer. It's important for us to grasp in this section. This isn't a logical argument Paul's going through here, but it's a prayer for a people. And Paul is saying you get this knowledge by praying Prayer is such an uh, important way in knowing God. And this prayer isn't something between me and God. It's a corporate prayer. What what do we pray for each other? What do you pray for as a church? I think one thing we see in this part of the letter is we should be praying prayers like this. Prayers which ultimately culminate in that we may know God better. Because if you know God better, there are some things that you will experience and not just know. And Paul goes on to list these things for us. Paul says, Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians of every spiritual blessing in Christ to know God so that they may know the hope he has called them to. The riches of being the father's inheritance and the power of God working in them. And we'll see later on that Paul really drives home this last point. He really drives home the power of God working in them. But we'll come to that when we look at it. So let's look at this hope he's called them to in the first half of verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. It's a funny phrase, isn't it? The eyes of your heart enlightened doesn't really... Makes sense. The heart of your mind enlightened. We get that. But the eyes of your heart enlightened? 
as much as our culture might want us to be, we're not purely rational beings. It's not a case of if we have more education, we'll eventually become perfect. But we aren't just governed by a mind, we are governed by a heart. Not, not literally the organ pumping blood uh, around our body. Here the heart means the center of our physical, our spiritual being, combining our intellectual understandings and personal affections. Think back to that whiskey analogy. I knew in my head about Thailand Park whiskey. But it wasn't until I tasted it, then I knew in my heart as well what it was. Paul prays that the eyes of the Ephesians' heart, that their entire being may be enlightened, that they may know, that they may know the hope to which he's called them to. So then the question comes to you, well, what is that hope, Paul? What is that hope you've called them to? Well, I think he's basically summarizing verses 3 to 14. The hope is, is being known by the Father, being adopted into his family through Jesus, blessing us in him. The hope is we've been redeemed, bought back from death and slavery and sin. We've been forgiven of our sin. So we look forward to the time when Jesus will unite all things to him and for him. Our hope is that we have eternal life, the Holy Spirit keeping us, sealing us. Our hope is that with people of all nations, we will be with God forever. And when the Bible speaks of hope, it's not just wishful thinking. It's not, I hope Dundee will qualify for Europe next year. See, hope in the Bible is assurance of something not yet received. Paul wants us to grow in the hope he's called us to. And this starts with prayer, with corporate prayer, praying this for one another. See, hope is a powerful thing that transcends what you see in front of you. It affects all of life. I had a friend who was, who was terrified of flying. She hated takeoff. She hated turbulence. She hated everything about flying. But the only reason she ever flew was, was because she had hope that the person who would meet her off the plane was worth going to see. She had hope. She had assurance that what met her was better than what she would go through. So the more time she spent with her friends she went to to see, the more real her hope was. And the more you know God, the more real this hope of being with God becomes. And this hope of being with God isn't something we've earned. It's not something that we deserve. It's something which is given to us with an assurance, the seal of the Holy Spirit, so that we won't lose it. God has given us this hope. He will make sure that we receive what he promises. Paul says, you know God, then you'll know hope. He says, you know God, then you'll know the riches of being the Father's inheritance. Have a look again at the second half this time of verse 18. And I wonder if, like me, you totally misread it the first time you saw it. The hope, what are the riches of his, not our glorious inheritance, His glorious inheritance in the saints. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. The eternal God has everything. He needs nothing. And yet what is the one thing he wants for his inheritance? Well, it's his church, his people. What does it have meant for these Ephesian Christians to hear 
These new Christian believers perhaps causing division in their family, families of Artemis worshippers, a legacy now come to an end. And these once worshippers of this false god, now the inheritance of God the Father. Do you think they felt deserving of this, knowing what they'd come from? Do you think we feel deserving of this, knowing what we are like? Well, no. That's the point. We don't feel deserving because we know we aren't. We know our sin. God knows our sin. And yet he is able to take us and make us his inheritance, which makes him look glorious. That God is preparing a glorious inheritance for him to enjoy for all eternity. Sinners saved and sanctified from all across the world. This is what he has chosen for himself to be his inheritance. Sinners chosen, redeemed, adopted, sealed. These once wretched people, now his children and bride of his son. The very thing he's prepared for his enjoyment. I heard this and my mind just went, this isn't some sort of harsh Taskmaster of God. It's amazing. What a gracious God. That God has planned not for you and I, once enemies of him, to somehow sneak into heaven and hope that no one realizes that we shouldn't be there. Instead, God has planned for you and I, that are Christians, to be the very thing he looks forward to in the recreation. His inheritance. More time is spent looking at this passage be more thankful for the cross. be more thankful for Jesus. And it opened my mind more to see what our Father is like. What Paul prays for are wonderful things. The fact that these things are sure and not just wishful thinking. I think this warms the heart to God, whose ferocious love has won us. Paul's prayers for the Ephesian Christians who have every spiritual blessing in Christ to know God so that they may know the hope he has called them to, so that they may know the riches of being the Father's inheritance, and that they may know the power of God working in them. Have a look down at uh, verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. I remember Paul was writing to uh, the church in Ephesus. I said, where is the power in Ephesus? Is it with the church? Or is it with the spiritual power of Artemis and its massive following and the great military superpower of Rome? Where is the power in Ephesus? See, Paul here really wants to emphasize the immense power of the Father. So in verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. There's no power compared to his. Paul's reminding the Ephesian church the truth. He's saying, do you realize that there is a power in you more powerful than anything else in the the universe? That the great creator of the cosmos with infinite power and the ability to do whatever he wills, whenever he wills, chooses to use his power towards us, for us. And Paul really drives us home in verses 20 to 23. I remember these Christians left Artemis worship 
We saw last week, they burnt their old spiritual books. They are very aware of the spiritual battle they are in, of their spiritual opposition. So Paul prays them to know the power of God working in them, which is the power of Jesus' resurrection, the power of Jesus' rule, and the power of Jesus' fullness. Let's look at the first one, resurrection power. What does, what does that mean, resurrection power? Well, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead gives us assurance that God can and he will resurrect us from the dead. We see at the start of chapter 2 next week when we see that God has also raised us now into heavenly places with Christ. This isn't the most uh, pleasant illustration, but I bet you remember it. Ask any midwife, as soon as that head comes, the body cannot help but follow. Because Christ is the head of the church, where the head goes, the body can't help but follow. Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So we now, the body, spiritually have been raised from the dead and sit with Christ. We have now spiritual death to life, and we look forward to physical death to life. But it doesn't feel like that, does it? It doesn't feel like we've been raised with Christ. We feel unworthy. We often feel indifferent. We feel stained in sin. Satan and his workers accuse us all day and point out things we already know about ourselves. But our hope is sure because Christ has risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, In verse 21, we see another assurance that he is above everything and everyone. Christ is seated right under the Father in the heavenly places, far above every rule, every authority, every power, every domain, every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. The Ephesians were worried about the spiritual opposition. Paul reminds them all spiritual realms, all physical realms are under Jesus' authority. But we do have a great enemy. We do have a powerful enemy. But there is a greater power at work in us. So I love this quote from Martin Luther, the reformer. He said, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. We see the power of Jesus' resurrection. We see the power of his rule. And we see the power of his fullness. Have a look at 22 to 23. And God placed all things under his feet. And appointed him, that is Jesus, be the head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus is the head of the church. This church doesn't belong to to David Robertson, doesn't belong to the elders. This church belongs to Jesus, as do all churches. He is the head. And the church is connected to him. Where the head goes, the body goes also. Jesus lacks nothing because we are connected to him, his church lacks nothing. Because in him, being united to him, we have every spiritual blessing. So this great power. Where is the rule and reign 
of the risen, conquering, victorious Christ seen today? What in his church? Is that not amazing? Do we know that? Do we, do we get that? This church universal seems so weak at times, so foolish. Now as we carry on in Ephesians, we'll see more that the rule and reign of the risen, conquering, victorious Christ is made visible in his church and what that looks like. And it is astounding when we get to the second half of the letter. See, Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians who have every spiritual blessing in Christ is to know God so that they may know the hope he has called them to, so that they may know the riches of being the Father's inheritance, so that they may know the power of God working in them, which is the power of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' rule, and Jesus' ruleness. Sorry, Jesus' fullness. This was Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. It's to be our prayer for one another also. It is one thing to know the great blessings of verses 1 to 14. And it is another thing to know the God of those blessings. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us the riches of your glorious inheritance in your holy people and your incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength you exerted when you raised Christ from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And you placed all things under Christ's feet. And appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. Help us to be a people who pray prayers like this for one another. To be a church which prays for one another that we may know God, not simply know about you. We confess that for the times when we are so comfortable in simply knowing about you. May that not be enough. Brother, what we know about you drive us to want to know you more and to praise you. For you are worthy of all worship, all praise, all glory. And in the name of our glorious King, Lord Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Amen.